0: Hello, Uh, my name is Paul Morn, and I'm delighted to be continuing the Origins series with you. Uh, Maybe as a way of getting to know me a bit better. If any of you have done a personality test, you know, you get some insights into uh, how you're wired. And one of the tests I've done in my time is strength finders. And one particular characteristic helped me give language to my love for history, to my love for looking into the past. And that was this um, characteristic of context. That something of what it means to be Paul Morn is a desire to understand the context. Let me read a little bit about what this says to to, to you about me. It says someone with context views the present as unstable, a confusing clamour of competing voices. But by casting their mind back in time, a time when plans and blueprints were getting formed, they're able to better understand the current times. How do you feel about where we find ourselves currently? There are a lot of competing voices. There's a lot unknown about our future because, quite frankly, by the decisions we make on a daily basis, we're busy creating that future. But rather than try and predict that future, something I love to do is to look back when the plans were being formed, when the blueprints were getting uh, drafted out, and to use that to make sense of the future. And so that's what we're busy doing across our city and all our different congregations. We're going back to the origins. We're saying in the beginning, what was in the heart of God? And and who is this God? And and what does that mean for us and the world we live in, for the pain we see, for the evil we see? By going back, we actually equip ourselves to deal with the future. And so I'm continuing that journey with us today. And, And as you could possibly pick up, given my strengths profile Uh, of context that's something I'm delighted to do because I do think it's going to help us tremendously so last week if you weren't part of uh, us I'd recommend you go and have a look at it but we essentially said the three options you've got when you look at the world that we find ourselves in when you look at this this earth that we're a part of one option is that it all came back out of blind luck The second is that there are actually billions and trillions of universes and we just happen to be in the one where it's all worked out and that's known as the multiverse theory. And the final one is that behind all of this, there is a designer. Essentially, when we look back in time, those are the three options you've got. And we reasoned and looked at it and said there's compelling intellectual reasons as well as soul satisfying reasons to land on the the fact that it's a designed world we live in. And that when we go back, there is a designer and there are blueprints which he's called us to follow. And what we're gonna do this week is we are gonna actually be taking Genesis beyond just the first verse and looking at the whole of chapter one. I don't have time to read the whole chapter to you. Please go and read it yourself and and pour yourself into it. What we're gonna do is represent it visually and to show it in a different way by leaning on the Bible project who've done a great job of giving us an overview of chapter one. This video is going to be about four minutes and I'd encourage you to lean in and see what they have to say about Genesis 1.
1: The first book in the Bible is called Genesis.
2: And we're going to look closely at the first page of the book of Genesis. It's a carefully crafted narrative about God creating and ordering the whole cosmos. Okay, let's check it out.
1: Now, the opening line of the whole Bible is, In the beginning, God created the skies and the land.
2: Now, your Bible translation might say the heavens and the earth. In biblical Hebrew, the word for heaven refers simply to the sky above. And the word for earth does not mean globe, but rather the land.
1: The ground below us.
2: Right. This line is summarizing what's going to happen in the following narrative, which
1: starts in the next line. And it reads, Now the land was wild and waste.
2: This phrase rhymes in Hebrew. The land was tohu vavohu, which means unordered and uninhabited. This is the ancient way of talking about the pre-creation state what we might call nothingness. For the biblical authors, non-existence means having no purpose and no order. And the next line uses another image to say the same thing.
1: And darkness was on the face of the deep abyss. What's the deep abyss?
2: Yeah, it's a dark, chaotic ocean. It's another common way the ancients described the non-reality that preceded creation. Now, here's where things start to get interesting, because in the midst of those dark waters,
1: God is present. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters.
2: The Hebrew word for God's spirit is ruach, which can refer to wind or breath or God's invisible
1: presence. So you can't see it, but God is present in the darkness, ready to bring order so that life can flourish.
2: Yes, and this ordering happens in a series of six days.
1: Each day begins with the phrase, and God said, and then ends with the phrase, and there was evening and morning.
2: Yeah, every day addresses those problems introduced in verse 2, that there's no order and no inhabitants. So on days 1 through 3, God splits apart that unordered darkness into three ordered realms. Then on days 4 through 6, God fills the uninhabited wasteland with creatures. Interesting. Let's see how that works. Okay, so the first realm of order begins with light on day one. Ah, yes. Let there be light. This is God's own glorious light that fills and contains the darkness as he
1: separates day from night. God's establishing the order of time. Okay, and then on day two, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. What's the vault?
2: In the ancient culture of the biblical authors, the sky was perceived as a solid dome that holds back waters. God's depicted here as splitting the chaos waters in half, above and below, which creates the realms of the sky and the seas.
1: And then on day three, let the waters under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. God is establishing
2: the realm of the land, and it emerges out of the chaotic waters. And then there's a bonus creative act on day three. God invites plants and fruit trees with seed to emerge out of the land.
1: Okay, so we've got the realms of time, the realm of the sky and the seas, and the land. And they all have order. Right.
2: Now, it's time to go back and fill these realms of days one through three with inhabitants. This is what happens on days four through six. So in day four, Let
1: there be lights in the vaults of the sky.
2: God installs these lights, the sun, moon, and stars, as signs and symbols that reflect God's own light. He gives them his own royal power to separate day and night.
1: Then on day five, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the land.
2: Yeah, these are the creatures that live in the waters below and those that fly near the
1: waters above. Then finally, on day six, let the land produce living creatures.
2: They emerge up out of the ground to live on the land. And then, matching that bonus act of creation on day three, God makes a special land creature, human, or in Hebrew, Adam. Then God provides all of those plants from day three as abundant food.
0: Okay, I hope you appreciated seeing it uh, depicted in a slightly different way. In the beginning, God created the skies and the land and that, that format of six days. Now, here's the big idea of chapter one, and here's the big idea of our time together. It's this simple truth, that in the beginning, God created everything. Even today, God created everything. The, the light, the stars, the earth, the sea, the plants, the animals, men and women, God created absolutely everything. And there, of course, are disagreements about chapter one. But those disagreements are generally around two things. How did God do it and how long did it take? But I put it to you that what we're actually studying when we look at chapter one is not at all around those questions. It's rather around who created it and why they created it. Tim Keller's helped me understand it. I, if I can give you the following analogy. Imagine you got given a gift, uh, but a tech that you've been waiting for. Maybe it's unexpected, but suddenly a sports watch or, 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 or a gift you'd longed for arrived. Would your first question be, hmm, how did they make this? Uh, what tools did they use? How long did it take to make? Now I think your first set of questions would be to ask, what is this and how does it work and how can I use it without destroying it and blowing it up? you'd you'd be asking a different set of questions to how we can typically look at chapter one of Genesis. And so one thing all Christ followers should have in common is that we are creationists, that we believe this, that God created everything. And whilst there are differences of opinion between some people that say it took 6,000 years and others that say it took four and a half billion years, there are also differences between people that said it was instantly created and those that would say it was gradually uh, developed over a process of natural selection. The, the main point of this passage and the main point of this chapter is not to answer those questions, but rather to draw us into the truth that God created everything. I, today I'm not going to be speaking about common grounds position on these things. We often in our circles talk about uh, blood issues that are those that are really important and defining. We talk about ink issues which are also important but not nearly as important as blood and finally pencil which are which contestable matters which aren't um, as uh, crucial as, as would be blood and ink. A, a pencil captures that last category. Uh, the type of Music you, you play in, in a venue, for instance. But what we are declaring this morning as a blood issue is that God created everything, right? If, if, you, if you are a Christ follower, you believe that God created everything. But then there's a whole category of theories around how long it took and how he did it, where I'd suggest that there actually are a few matters which are uh, contestable, but which can be settled in probably three different positions, which are biblically accurate as well as scientifically informed. We are going to create some resources which will allow you to explore those positions. But because that's not the focus of this chapter, i put it to you that that shouldn't be our focus either. But we're looking forward to engaging with you around those extra resources, especially for those of you that want to read further. So this view isn't common grounds view because we see this as a matter of, of, of ink around which particular uh, creation account you believe. But certainly something which we do believe strongly is this truth that God created everything. So what follows now is what I hope to help you look at this chapter with fresh eyes. This is in Common Grounds view. This is Paul Morn's view, but it's, I hope, uh, uh, something of a gift to you, which I've gleaned a lot from Andrew Wilson, a theologian out of the UK, who's, who's done a lot of great work on this particular passage. So let's go for it. We are looking at Genesis chapter one. And the first question we need to look at when exploring this passage is quite a simple one. It's a question of saying, well, what genre of writing is Genesis chapter one? What kind of literature, what type of literature is this? When you look at scripture, you have eight major literature types. And I'm just going to put a little spectrum in front of you, kind of the two extremes. The one extreme obviously would be historical factual, analytical, he has an account of what happened. And on the other side, you have other genres of scripture which speak about poetry and expressive language and figurative language and and almost trying to get an emotional response from us. And they'll use a different uh, language devices to do that. Let me illustrate what I mean. Let's, let's go to this one end of the spectrum, historical factual accounts. Let's look at uh, the account of uh, Mark chapter 16, the book of Mark, which we've been spending considerable amount of time in looking at the life of Jesus. Let's read Mark chapter 16, verses one to four together. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Siloam bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, "Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb?" And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Well, where's that landing? If if you just look at the facts, you've got. The time, you've got the people, you've got what they were doing, you've got a little bit about you know the, the fact that they were walking to the tomb, the sun had risen, there was a stone, it was large. Clearly, this falls into a genre of writing, which is historical, chronological, factual, drawing all the details together to be represented as accurately as possible. And, and there are many genres that would be similar to that throughout um, scriptural accounts. What would be an example of the other uh, side of the spectrum? Well, I think Song of Psalms is a, is a good example. It's a, it's a love poem that's been written, uh, expressing the, the desire husband has for his wife. There's all kinds of imagery getting used in that particular book. The hare is described as a herd of goats, eyes like, like doves. Now, that is language which we wouldn't associate with being historical factual, right? It's clearly something else. It's poetry. It's it's something overflowing from an emotional response. And you would make a big error if you tried to read Song of Psalms like you would Mark chapter 16 let's just have a look at what uh, someone on the internet did. They took Song of Songs, they read it literally. They created a a woman that would be depicted by the literal interpretation. You can see goats for hair, you can see um, doves for eyes and a a neck like a tower. Quite frankly, no one would write a poetry about that image, right? You're doing a great injustice if you try to read Song of Songs as if its genre was Mark chapter 16. And that's why right at the start, we have to ask the question, what kind of literature is it? Is Genesis 1 like Mark 16, a factual chronological account, or is it more like Song of Songs, an expressive account of what was happening? And guys, we, we do this in our, our lives. If, if you've ever played a game of charades, right, or 21 questions, you, you start off first by saying it's, it's a movie or it's a book. You, you have to get the genre right so that you then follow the the correct uh, literature um, guidelines. And so it's no different with scripture. See, Moses, when he's writing the book of Genesis in 1500 BC, he's collecting up uh, all the information uh, that the people of Israel have. And he's, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit and he's putting this book together and he switches between factual, chronological and expressive and he switches and he doesn't always indicate when he's doing it. And so we need to roll up our sleeves now and really have a look at Genesis 1 and and locate it on the scale. Is it it Mark 16 or is it it Song of Songs? Now, quite clearly, if you look at Genesis, it's not poetry. It's not not pure Song of Songs. There's reasons that I'd suggest that's the case, but one of them Andrew Wilson provides is that Hebrew poetry typically has rhyming uh, lines that follow each other, that reinforce each other. And you don't see that in Genesis. You don't see the same idea repeated and, uh, closely together. So it's not pure Song of Songs. But yet neither is it um, Mark 16, right? It's not a, a chronological factual account. And let me express to you why I think that's the case. It's, it's not on either extreme, it's, but I'd suggest it's probably closer to Song of Songs. Let's, let's look at why I would land there. The first clue. The first clue is this phrase. These are the generations of... It's a phrase that repeats 10 times in the book of Genesis as Moses is writing this book. It appears for the first time in Genesis 2 verse 4 and it speaks about the generations that come, whether it's of Adam and and Shem and and, and others as it goes. It really does seem to form the the shape of this book. Large chunks of it are are chronological and meant to give us an understanding of the origin of of people and, and, and how we got here. But yet you'll notice that chapter one doesn't contain that phrase. It's almost as if it's an introduction. It's an overture, which would be played before a concert to kind of give you the main themes, but not to, not to give you uh, the same uh, genre as, as what's to follow. And so that's just a hint. That's just a clue that perhaps Genesis 1 is not like the rest of the book of Genesis, which has its, as its emphasis the generations and the generations and the generations. The second thing which I would suggest is a clue is something which was picked up quite early on in church history by Oregon and by others, which is that as you look at the creation account, you have a situation where plants are created before the sun and the moon. We know through photosynthesis and other processes that 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 wouldn't really be possible. You have a, a bit of a problem if you think Genesis 1 is closer to Mark 16 in your reading because you have uh, this difference, which is that plants are existing before a sun does. That, that would suggest that maybe there's more than just chronological factual reporting taking place here, but something more along the lines of, song, of songs. The third clue which I, I would suggest exists is that it appears that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are covering the same material. That, that's what they're doing. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are covering the same material, but yet it appears that Genesis 1 is taking it from a different angle. Um, I, I I'm thinking of how a movie director often starts a movie. You, you've got the titles, and then suddenly you have a sweeping wide-angle view of of what's going on. It kind of locates you, and then it slowly zooms in on on the person who the movie's about. Whether it's Forrest Gump sitting on a, a bench, or you know an animated character who's who's trying to um, you know let their home grow with balloons. I mean, whatever movie it is, it seems to be that the director will go wide angle and then zoom in on a particular story. It's it's looking as a clue that that is what the writer is doing here as well. It's, It's looking at the big picture of creation, looking at all that has been made before zooming in in chapter two on two particular individuals, Adam and Eve. And by the way, Scripture does this in other places. Um, in Judges 4, you have an actual battle. Deborah uh, leading her armies. And then in Judges 5, the exact same event is depicted, but now through uh, a song. And it's celebrating the same event, the two going together. Well, how about Exodus 14, where you've got the Israelites leaving um, Egypt and crossing through the, the Red Sea. And, and then Exodus 15 is the song of celebration, referring again to the same events, but through a different genre and a different literary device. i suggest this could be something similar happening here. The Genesis 1 is, is a collection of, of, of great importance, a wide-angle view declaring God created everything. God created everything before we, we zoom in in particular in Genesis 2. The final, the final clue that comes to us, and perhaps you would have picked it up a little bit through the Bible Project video which we looked at, and you certainly would pick it up if you read chapter one uh, right now, is that it consists. It consists of some refrains, some choruses, some lines that are repeated. Uh, in in you know in the morning, God said, God said, God said, God said it was good. You know, and that was the end of the day, and then and the next morning, you'll see these repeated lines coming up, which if you're familiar with songs, is, is quite, a, quite a normal device, right? Your chorus bringing you back and reminding you again and again that ultimately God created everything. God is powerful and that he is the one that we should be focusing on. So these are all clues that, that give me confidence that when we're trying to categorize Genesis 1, we're not talking uh, about... Um, a genre that's unknowable. We're talking about a genre which plays a particular role, and, and in this particular role, it's a device to move our hearts and to draw attention through a wide-angle view. To our our, our 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 message in Genesis one is clear: God created everything, and it's a it's a glorious passage which we can meditate on as Christ fathers. Now this. This text has been misused by people. And I would suggest that it's misused when it doesn't emphasize what it was trying to emphasize, the who and the why. And when it's used to try and emphasize the how and the when. You see, we need to not um, read the genre inaccurately for what it's truly representing. Now, you might have a different view on these things and that's why I said right up front, this is, uh, this is me trying to unpack what how I see the view, uh, the scripture with Andrew Wilson's help. But nevertheless, we we need to agree that this primarily is making a massive point around who God is and not so much about how and when he created. I I believe it's important that we don't put uh, science and and scripture against one another. Scripture is primary. Scripture is God's revelation to us. But when scripture doesn't speak about particular things, we get to to open up our atlases. We get to open up um, fascinating disciplines that God has created that we can then study his creation. These two things don't compete against each other, but they're, they're complementary. Uh, let me uh, maybe give an illustration that might help. We, we had the privilege um, late last year of marrying uh, Steph and Albury in our congregation. Fantastic couple. And they stood in front of me and at the end of the ceremony said, you know, you, husband can kiss your wife. And there are two ways you can describe what happened. The one way would describe, man, they, they were united in marriage and they celebrated each other. They love each other so much. They embraced and they had a, had a kiss. What a moment, you know? That's one way to interpret it. It was Steph, it was Albury, and they did it because they'd just um, said their vows to each other and they'd entered into the covenant of marriage. A scientific explanation of that exact same uh, event could have been, you know, two individuals uh, joined lips uh, over over a distance of 30 centimetres. They then joined, um, you know, microbes and CO2 was transferred. I mean, you could get into all the scientific detail. Is one right and one wrong? No, they're both right. Does one um, take out the other one? No, they're just asking fundamentally different questions. The who and the why and the how and how long are not the same, but they come alongside each other and help each other. And so why, why does God then kind of use a Genesis 1 before getting into the generations, of Genesis, generations of, of Genesis 2? Why is it there? I would suggest the big reason it's there is because he's showing us that in his creation, he was, he was making he was making the universe. He was making the skies. He was making the land. And then notice what he then does. He fills the universe. He fills the skies and he fills the land. He's, he's, he's spending three days telling us how he's creating out of chaos order. And then he spends three days showing us how he then fills the order of creation. It's incredible as we start to understand the scripture that wasn't written to us, but is written for us. And it's fascinating when we spend time because we see that God created with light, which fascinatingly is exactly what scientists today believe, that there's a big bang or God spoke the word into light. There's a huge amount of agreement that God created the earth for our enjoyment. And perhaps you've been puzzled for a while. Ever since I said, how, how did day four, the sun arrive, but plants are, are, are there earlier? How, what's up with that? If you get into the shoes of Moses at that time of 1500 BC, many other faiths would have existed that would have bowed down to the stars, bowed down to the sun, bowed down to the moon. And Moses in, in this portrayal of Genesis 1 is essentially saying, no, 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 guys, you're missing the point. Your gods weren't even created uh, at the beginning, they only came along later on day four. Don't you see that the God who's revealed himself to me, the God who's making himself known, the God who's going to come powerfully to this earth with his son, Jesus Christ, he, he only made all gods on day four. Look to him as the source of life. Look to him as the one who alone is worthy of worship that starts to explain why it's represented as a day four creation. And same with the sea creatures, which also many others would have been in awe of and in wonder of. they only came out much later, day five, man. It's, It's a point that's been made to those people that there's a God here who created everything, who's over all other gods. So if you had to say to me, Paul, I've always struggled with my faith because I start reading the Bible in Genesis and then I go, science has disproved all of this. I'd say to you, no, man, no. Like we've said, there's, really only three options for origin. It's blind luck. It's a multiverse. It's design. And many, many scientists from across the globe would say, I study science and I believe in design. I believe in a designer. I'd also say to you that when you study science, you get the big bang, marvelously aligning with scripture. But then you also see that humans as we know them today, as they've been cultivating and, and working the land and settling in cities, both science and the Bible agree that that sort of took place about 10,000 years ago. And so right at the beginning, it's got the big bang, and right now around how people came on the scene, you've got in tremendous agreements. They're not competing, they're complementary. The one looks at who and why, and the other looks at how and how long. And the big point, which we must admit, is that God created everything. So finally, what what, what do I personally want us to leave with as we've studied and as we've gone back into Genesis 1? I want us to leave with this question. What can we know about God? What does Genesis 1 teach us about God? This is a God who seems to specialize in creating lights out of darkness, a light that the darkness cannot push back. You go to John 1 and you read that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, speaking about Jesus Christ. And again, speaking about Him as the light of the world, that darkness could not overcome, whether it's in Genesis 1 or John 1, you see the same theme coming through, that there is a God of light who overcomes darkness. And when you look back at the blueprints and the plans, we see that there was a God who created those blueprints and those plans. And the world has gone wrong through sin and evil and suffering, which we will be looking at in the next few weeks. But the fantastic news, which John 1 declares, is that the world hasn't been left in that state of decay. That creator has come, and that creator has made a way for us to walk in union with him again. As we acknowledge our shortcomings, as we acknowledge our sin, as we acknowledge the, the, the role that we play, he steps in as our substitute and brings us home. So there's with good news that we can look in these pandemic times at what Genesis 1 teaches us about God. We can run to our creator and not find ourselves lost in all the created things around us. There's a couple of things that I I see when I read this passage and I encourage you to look at it as well and read some of things. We see that this God is powerful. This God has got incredible power to intervene on our behalf. He's a God of power who creates. I love that line, which we pick up in Genesis 1, verse 16, where it says, and also stars. Also stars. You can go into the NASA website and you can see the most incredible stars that we're picking up through the Hubble telescope. And you'll see the, the beauty that's contained there. But Genesis has just described this. Oh, also stars. God created those. This God is not just powerful. This God is creative. When he speaks, things happen. One of the most delightful things I get to do every now and again with my kids is take them out into nature. And whether you're looking at the smallest things or the, the largest landscapes, you can speak about a God that made this all. My father made this all is kind of the line I say to the guys. Or perhaps we've got lots of rain outside and we'll put on a DVD and we'll watch planet Earth. There's incredible footage of deep water submersibles going down and they've got cameras out there. And the guys are going, oh, we actually don't know what that thing is. Hey, we've never seen one of those before. We've, there's, there's creation that God's made, which we've never laid eyes on, but he's making. And they're declaring his goodness and putting his creativity on display. This is a God of authority. He's the author of life. He alone is the one who gets to say, it's good, it's good, it's very good. He, he decides that, that light will come out of darkness. He moves the sand, sea and puts it there and puts the land over there. He's the author of life. He's the ultimate authority. And so we run to him for perspective and for, for our North Star. I think of how he doesn't just uh, say it's very good, but in saying that he blesses and he brings about flourishing and brings about life. It's the God of order. Uh, the, the argument that science and, and, and faith collide. It's not true. In fact, if you look at many of the modern scientists, it's their faith. It's their knowledge that there's a God of order, which actually drives them to become scientists and see the order behind everything. The reason they're so excited is because as they follow all the little bits of their biology or their geography or their physics, they see the fingerprint of a designer and they turn that into worship. And then finally, you've got a God who both works and rests. He has this beautiful pattern, six days of work, one day of rest. And he in making us in his image, it points us to that same rhythm. We're not called just to work, 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 or just rest, 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 rest. But there's this, there's this commissioning from him to be made in his image and to do what he does. So much more that you could do is you look at this passage and don't, I don't read it as what does it say about me and, and how long it took for me to arrive. Read it as a thing. What does it say about God and why he created? And when I read that he works and that he rests, I'm reminded of Jesus Christ who, who worked on our behalf, who, who went to the cross. As I said, that, that John declared him the, the, the word with us. The light overcame darkness. And on the cross, what his last words are, it is finished. He, he rested from that work of salvation. He did what we could never do. And he declared it is finished over us. The good news of the gospel is not just that God created everything, but it's that God has made a way for us uh, rebels to come home and to find our rest in him. The same words that created us were the words that said, it is finished. And it can be for each of us today as we perhaps recognize that in these pandemic times, we've lost sight of God and we've, we've filled our minds with so many other things. Perhaps for the first time today, you also can see clearly the God who created everything and what he's done to reconcile you to himself. And you can join in a prayer of declaration of God's goodness. So let's pray together as we land. God, we thank you that you created everything by the power of your word, but also, Jesus, that you said, it is finished by the power of your word. We can celebrate our creation, we can celebrate our salvation today. Come and help people who, for the first time, cross in the line of faith, who are saying, I don't trust in myself, but I trust in you, Jesus Christ. And Holy Spirit, come and fill us all as we respond to you this week, the creator of everything. Amen.